Good evening. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We'll get plugged up here. Okay. Good evening. Good to see you all. You're wondering why I'm looking at the clock. I'm looking at the clock because I don't know what time you end. (laughs) Okay. See, they say that. They say that. Other people are like, no, I've got stuff to do. All right. Galatians chapter 3. It's it's good to be with you all. Um, Galatians chapter 3, if you weren't here this morning, is a dense chapter. It's a dense chapter because it deals with big topics like salvation, what God was doing with Israel, the relationship between the law and grace, um, tensions in the early church, the missionary journeys of Paul. I mean, it's like a a central chapter in a central book in the middle of the Bible. It's kind of a big chapter, and so there's really no way that um, we can do justice to all of the chapter. But uh, we're jumping into the middle of kind of where we were uh, this morning. Actually, no, it's not the middle. We've, I think we got through three of my slides. So if you were here this morning. Uh, but this little graphic kind of shows you uh, the layout of Paul's argument. Remember what's going on here. Let's get our bearings. Paul preached the gospel to some Christian, some unbelievers in the south central area of Turkey And not long after his first missionary journey was over, he got word that people in this local church, young believers, were sort of turning from the faith that they had been taught. Paul says it was taught very clearly to you as well, and you were turning so quickly to another gospel. They're switching over to a lifestyle that somehow involved keeping aspects of the Mosaic law. And it doesn't seem like for Paul what they were doing was just sort of adding a couple things, right? Well, we're just, we just had um, a Jewish background, and now we're just kind of going with our culture. That wasn't what was going on here, because many of the, the believers were, were not Jewish anyways. What Paul's concern seems to be is like, you've stepped into a whole system, and when you step into a whole system, you're in real trouble. You've sort of gone from the ground of grace through faith in Christ to a legalistic system, and so he writes this letter to them, In the first couple chapters, Paul's talking about how his gospel wasn't something that he made up. It wasn't something that he, you know, got from human people. He didn't go to a school and get a degree. No, he got it directly from who? The Lord. Oh, and by the way, he went to Jerusalem and the apostles gave him the right hand of fellowship. They gave him a thumbs up. So you can't say Paul's message, whoever the people were that were bothering the Galatians, they couldn't accuse Paul of sort of getting his, you know, his gospel from somewhere questionable. No, it was directly from the Lord. So what's going on in chapter 3? Chapter 3, he switches from his own sort of defense of his own history to looking at some theological reasons for why they shouldn't have made this move. And we started this morning with four rhetorical questions that Paul asks, all right? Nope, let me just get the pointer here. I should stay in one place. Uh, Four questions that that Paul asks them about their, um, their own experiences, All right, so let's read some in Galatians chapter 3. 
uh, starting at verse 1 again, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I just want to ask you a few questions, Paul says. Uh, he asks us four, four rhetorical questions. Did you receive the Spirit? Um, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And what's the answer supposed to be? They received it by faith. And we ended this morning looking at all of these Old Testament verses about the Spirit. What was the big point that you're supposed to go away with and that you're supposed to study if maybe you're looking for something to study? Go do a big study on the, the promises of the Spirit in the prophets. The, the, the promises of the restoration of Israel weren't the only thing that the prophets prophesied. They prophesied a day that was coming when the Spirit would come upon all people. Where was the Spirit in the Old Testament? Who did the Spirit usually come upon? Was it upon everybody? No, it was upon prophets, priests, and kings, probably, usually, right? But then when Christ died, rose again, ascended to heaven, the Spirit came upon everybody. That was a huge change. It was a big change. Imagine trying to live your life. You might say to yourself, I, don't, I can't answer the question you're asking, Jesse, or the, the suggestion you're making. I can't identify with it. But I was going to say, well, some of you can Imagine trying to live your life without the indwelling spirit. Those of you that were saved by kids, as kids, you're like, I don't, this is all I remember. Those of you that weren't saved as children, you're like, oh, I can remember that life. Uh, but the, the believers in the Old Testament weren't all indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's a significantly different way of trying to follow the Lord. So the promise of the Spirit was a big deal. Um, they didn't receive the Spirit by, by keeping the law, but by, uh, by believing the gospel by faith. Why would they want to go back to the old way? Verse number 3 I just got to get us moving here. Um, All right, question number two. Look at verse number three. Second rhetorical question. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This verse might help you understand a little bit of what is uh, kind of disputed about Galatians, right? Is Paul talking to the Christians in Galatia about salvation by works or is he also talking about the idea of you, were tr- you trusted Christ to begin with and now you're sort of maturing by keeping the law? Whichever it is, this verse cuts off the second option, right? You don't start by trusting Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells you, you begin the Christian life, and then you sort of mature and grow by keeping the law of Moses. That's what Paul says, that, that doesn't work that way, okay? 3.3 um, three, three again, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh. This is not new to some of you, but there's always young ears in the audience. The word perfect or perfected in the scriptures doesn't mean like sinless perfection or like a flawless, you know, like a diamond, a perfect diamond. What perfect means is mature. It comes from the Greek word that means telos. What does telos remind you of, right? Um, I was in, in Josh's office today at his house, and he had a picture of the, um, the, 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 the Milky Way, next to one of Ricky's pictures, but it was kind of like the, the Milky Way galaxy, right? And so you look at the stars through a, a telescope, uh, except I guess the Milky Way picture is so clear there, they just took a picture of it. But where I live, there's like three stars above my house. Uh, so you need a telescope, right? That word telos gives you the idea of sort of reaching to an end. So what Paul in the New Testament and others mean by, by perfect is complete, full-grown, mature. When you plant a seed in the ground and it grows, that little sapling, that tree is not yet perfect, right? Once it's a full-grown, you know, mature tree, then it's perfect. It's, it's mature. It's reached its end. Paul is saying 
do you reach maturity by keeping the law? That's a, that's a ridiculous suggestion, uh, is his point here. All right? No, you, you continue on the same grounds you started on, believing God's word by faith, being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's how you reach maturity. You're on a completely different ground than Old Testament Christians were. Here's a third question he asks them. Did you suffer, verse 4, so many things in vain? What does vain mean? Vain means useless, empty. It was pointless, if indeed it was vain, right? That might not have as much weight for you, but you imagine in your life if you did something that you worked at and worked at and worked at, anything that jeopardizes that makes all of that effort in vain. Um. I'm trying to think of an example. I have one example. <laughs> I'll give, give an overly personal example. I'm, I'm working through, um, I'm working through this, this, this doctoral program, right? And, and sometimes you're just like, forget this. I just want a desk job. And, you know, it's years of work. And, and Ella's sometimes she's like, you got to finish this. We put, we put a lot of work into this, right, as a family. You, you don't want it to be in vain, all of the, the inconveniences and the struggles and the moves. I mean, that's absolutely right. Can you imagine things in your life, your own story, where you put all this work in and it's for nothing? Paul's saying, you guys suffered. You, you were persecuted. Was that for nothing? Now that you're going back to the Old Testament, it, you know, it, it doesn't have as much pull on you as a reader if you haven't been persecuted, but um, for them it was something that he thought would hopefully get through to them. Uh, look at the fourth question, okay? The fourth question. Um, on what basis did God perform miracles among them? Right? What's Paul doing again? Paul is basically asking them about their own experience. He's like, look, just look at your own life. Look at your own life. When you look at your life and these significant things in your own experiences, would they lead you to believe that you should continue living life by the Spirit or you should go back to the law? How do the miracles happen among you? This is an interesting little text, right? They were still experiencing certain miracles in their own context. How are those miracles happening? Or how did they see them happen when Paul came through? It wasn't because they were all keeping kosher food laws. It wasn't because they were all deciding to meet on Sabbath. It wasn't because they were all deciding to undergo circumcision and all of a sudden somebody was healed. It's like that's not how these miracles happen. These miracles happen because Christ was preached among you and the Holy Spirit was present. These happen on the ground of faith and the Spirit. We should read the verse here, verse number 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What's the answer? Look at how he gives you the answer. He doesn't just say, by faith. What does he do? This is a nice literary move that Paul makes. What's his answer to all four of the questions? It's in verse 6. The answer is the same way that Abraham experienced righteousness from the Lord. He kind of transitions. He gives Abraham as the answer to all those questions. The way all these things happened in your life was the same way they happened in Abraham's life. And so he's going to go to the second point. I'll read verse 6 again. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. This is why this chapter is such a big deal. He just stepped into some serious theological ground. I mean, we went from their lives back to Abraham. It's about to get really interesting here. Um, nothing about the major components of their own experience gave them grounds for putting much hope on the Mosaic law. It was by faith, not by law-keeping, that these great changes happened. So the first 
argument he makes about why they should stick with the gospel in Christ is what? Your own experience points you totally to salvation by faith, sanctification by faith, not, by, not, not law-keeping. Let me ask you about your life, and then we'll go on to his second big argument. What about your life, all right? Now, I have to say, it's good to hear in many corners of the, the, the church and in America, the evangelical church at least, that people have an understanding that, that they're not to proceed, they're not going to grow, they're certainly not going to get righteousness before God by keeping a law. But there are some people that are sort of tempted back into that, right, by keeping a religious system. Um, and, and there are whole groups that will, that will come to your door and basically say, hey, if you want to be righteous before Jehovah, if you want to be righteous before the Lord, you need to be out here doing what we're doing. Right? Look at us. Which organization is going door to door and really fulfilling Jehovah's work? Not you. You're mowing your lawn. We're out knocking on doors. It's sort of, you know, you know who I'm referring to, right? Um, by the way, when you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, I suggest you think about this first. What did Paul say about his brothers, the, the Israelites? He said they have a zeal for God, right? He was very respectful to them generally. They have a passion for God, but it's not according to knowledge, I think many people are like that. There's no way a lot of people would be doing the kind of things they would do. The, 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 you know, people in the, the watchtower, and they're going door to door. They're doing all of this work. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. That's a dangerous thing, right? Um, but they'll come and they'll say, hey, you know, this is how we're hoping to, you know, sort of get a right standing by God, and, and, and God alone will decide one day. And you can ask them that, like, well, you know, that's for Jehovah to judge who's righteous and not. It's a very different message than putting your trust in Christ and growing by the power of the Spirit, okay? Um, I don't know if there's anybody in the audience that's sort of struggling with that, that's tempted to do that, that, that's feeling like, you know, maybe I need to do more. Maybe I need to get involved in a system. Maybe I needed this. Maybe I needed that. Be careful about where you're putting your hope and where you're putting your trust because God's standard of righteousness is himself, his own perfect holy character. There is no way you will ever live up to, engineer, manufacture, climb to, educate yourself to, sell, walk, preach, or evangelize your way to God's holy standard. You will not, you never can. The only way you're going to meet the kind of righteousness that God demands is if he gives it to you as a gift. But that's not fair. You are absolutely right, it's not fair. That's the only way you're going to get it. Right? Nobody's going to be able to stand before God and be like, I did this. It was hard. Right? There's just, it's night and day. That doesn't mean, by the way, that our life with the Lord is not based on a rigorous pursuit of righteousness. The classic statement, I think it comes out of the Reformation, is the faith that saves. Um, we're saved by faith alone and not by works, but the faith that saves is, is not alone. In other words, when we trust Christ as our Savior, the Spirit begins to work in our lives and produces all kinds of righteousness. But it's the, right, the righteousness and uh, the, the works don't... Let me say that again. When we trust Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit that indwells us produces works of righteousness. But it's not the works that get us righteousness, right? It's, the, it's a gift from God. Uh, by the way, stop me if I'm talking too fast and I say something that just sounds ridiculous because I can't hear myself talking or something. Um, it's Sunday night, so we have to say a couple things that keep our attention. You know, you don't have to stand on a platform with a pulpit 
to preach, right? And you don't have to sit in pews, right? I just want to say this. None of this, I think you guys know this, but it's good to hear someone say None of this is essential to being a body, right? Hymn books, microphones, pulpits, all of these things are not essential. Just remember that. I don't know if that'll be helpful to some of you, right? We use them because they're effective, but they're not part of a core, you know, discipleship in life and, 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 and being a body of believers. Um, all right, so... Let's move to the second argument, okay? He said something in in verse 6 about, look at chapter 3, verse 6. How you got all of these wonderful blessings, how these major changes took place in your life was based on the same thing that happened in Abraham's life. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted for righteousness. And then Paul says something very interesting in verse number 7. Know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Did you ever think of yourself as a son of Abraham? This is where it's going to get interesting. Paul's second argument is Abraham's experience showed that believers are saved and kept by faith and not by nomism, not by keeping the law. So if it was good enough for Abraham, is it good enough for the Galatians? That's a pretty big card to pull. That's a pretty big move to make. If people want to keep the law, be, you know, sort of keep the Mosaic law, you're like, well, (laughs) let's talk about Father Abraham. Why is that a big move? Number one, because he's the source of the nation, right? Number two, they don't think about things like you do. In the ancient world, older was better, okay? If you wanted to defend your position, you wanted to write a book and defend your position, what would you do? You would refer back to the older writers, when Martin Luther or John Calvin were arguing against um, medieval Catholicism, both groups claimed and argued their position by referring to the apostolic fathers and the early church fathers. They're basically trying to say they're on our side. It was a strategy. Older is better. Probably post-enlightenment, modern society, now we say what's better? New is better. You're doing research or studying school? <laughs> it's 10 years old. That's old stuff, right? You need, you need, it can't even be in print. It's got to be online. Excuse me. Older was better. Who was older, Abraham or Moses? Abraham. Justin knows. Abraham, right? So he's more significant, and he's the father of the nation. So how did Abraham come to righteousness? This is a beautiful passage, okay? Um, Abraham comes to righteousness by faith. And look at verse number 7. In the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of, the, of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's ask a question here. If you have a group of people, I've got some good slides coming up too, so not just text. If you have a group of people that are tempted to get righteousness by keeping a law system, and part of that law system is being circumcised, it would be a very powerful move to show them that Abraham, who was the father of the whole Jewish nation, got righteousness long before he was ever circumcised. That's what Paul brings out in Romans. That's what he brings out here. How involved was the law in Abraham's life when he received the promise of righteousness. It wasn't involved at all. It came later. Was he circumcised when God counted his belief as righteousness? No. 
It wasn't. He wasn't circumcised. Abraham received righteousness totally apart from any of the things that the Galatians were tempted to follow, which proves that you don't need those things for righteousness. Turn back to Galatians chapter 12. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 12, another G book. I've got extra chapters in my Bible. It's a study Bible, so, you know, yeah. You're like, get them off the platform quick. Genesis chapter 12. If you want another good study, and you've never done this, study the covenants, study the promises in Scripture. I've got a set of slides if you want them that will walk you through them. Here's, the, here's sort of the, the, the early announcement of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 1 of Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. If you have a pen, underline that, because this language right here is showing up in Galatians 3. I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, all the families of the Lord of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? We're told in Scripture that Abraham believed what God said to him, and his faith was what was counted to him as righteousness. So if Abraham was made righteous without being circumcised, why do they need to be made righteous by doing all these different things? Romans chapter 4, I won't go there unpacks the same, the same issue with more detail. Um, keep your finger in Genesis chapter 12 and go back to Galatians because we're about to, we'll start, go, go back and forth between, between both of them. Galatians chapter 3. Abraham got righteousness as a gift from God by faith. So then, Paul argues, anybody who trusts God by faith the way Abraham did they're the true children of, of Abraham, or they're children of Abraham, or they're sons of Abraham in, in, in a similar way. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse number 8, In the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. I don't know if, you know, sometimes you say things, and you kind of get things in your mind and you're, you're explaining them and, and it, it may not be as clear. I want to make sure that, that this is clear to you, even if you miss everything. Getting this little nugget I have found has opened up a lot of scripture to me. Look very carefully at, at Galatians 3, verse number uh, 8 and, 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 and 9, but verse 8. The scriptures foresaw, foretold, hinted at the fact that that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, okay? And it hinted at this. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. When was the gospel preached to Abraham? When these words were announced to Abraham, in you shall all families of the earth be blessed, that was gospel. Now, what does gospel mean? Gospel means good news, right? It comes from the words, you, angelion, we get evangelistic from angelion, you, going on the front of words, makes them sort of, sort of positive good words. So, right, so this is the, the evangelion, the good news, gospel. 
How was the gospel preached to Abraham? I don't believe, I'm probably sort of talking through my slides. I probably should have just followed them. They're probably coming up actually at these points. But I don't believe that the Lord said at some point to Abraham, and we don't have it in Scripture, Jesus is coming someday, and Jesus is going to die on the cross for your sins, and if you trust him, right? I don't think that was the message. We don't see that being announced to Abraham. All that we see Abraham being told, I mean, some people will look for that. They'll look for hints. They'll say, oh, no, he was sort of informed with the complete same gospel that, 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 that we're, we're trusting. I don't think that's what happened. What the Scripture, I think, is saying is that when the Lord said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you, he was hinting at the fact that Christ would die. He's the seed of Abraham. He would rise. People would receive righteousness by faith. That blessing would come through Abraham. That's gospel. And you're like, that's neat. Can you show me that from Scripture? And I'm like, yes. Turn to Acts 3. And some of you are like, why are you talking like a teenager? Because this is the evening meeting. And we've got to keep awake, that's why. Acts chapter 3. When you do your study on the covenants of Scripture, you have to take a stop. You have to stop by Acts chapter 3. Look at the last verses. I, I might have preached on this at some point. Look at the last verses in Acts chapter 3. Here is a verse that connects, in the preaching of Paul, the words, all the world will be blessed in you, with Jesus' death on the cross, in case you were doubting. Acts 3. Um, where are we going to start here? Let's start in verse number 19. Repent, therefore, Peter's preaching in Jerusalem. Turn back or repent that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah or Christ appointed for you, that is Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of all his holy prophets long ago. Now, if there was ever a verse that sort of hinted at the idea that if the nation of Israel trusted Christ as their Savior, that the end times would kick in, this is one of them. I'm not saying that's the case. I don't know, but it's, it sort of feels like that when you read it, right? These, these promised times of restoration seem to be connected with their, their, their belief. But that's a digression. Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him. And whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. So this is big Bible interpretation language. Those days, these days, the prophets, things to come. They predicted these days, the things that you're seeing happen with Jesus and the resurrection. All that was talked about by all the prophets. Verse 25, now you, you can see him just sort of pointing to the, the, the Jews. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. Which one? Oh, this one, saying to Abraham. What does he say? He quotes the same thing. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All right? If you're lost, just take a moment. Christ is risen. Peter's preaching. Jerusalem. He's pointing at Jesus' resurrection, and he's saying, you guys, this is for you. The, the covenant promises made to Abraham were for you. God told your father, Abraham, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now look what it says here. God having, verse 25, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. How? By turning every one of you from your wickedness. Do you see what he did there? 
He quotes the Abrahamic covenant, and you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That was told to Abraham. Guess how that got fulfilled, Peter's hinting at, when Jesus rose from the dead and, and is trying to turn you from your sins, nation of Israel, that's the blessing. What's the point? The covenant blessing that was promised to Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years before had the cross in view. That makes good Bible sense. God promised Abraham a land, a seed, and a blessing. And what is that blessing? I don't think it was the technological wonders of the Jewish people, although I think there are more noble laureates that are Jewish than anything else, right? That's not the worldwide blessing. By the way, how many of you guys use the Waze app? Nobody in here uses Waze? Four people. The rest of you need to get with the show. It's a navigational app. It's awesome, right? And I think it was created by a Jewish programming company out, out of Israel. All kinds of smart, brilliant people, but, but the, the, the brilliant, you know, the Einsteins, right? The brilliance of, of the Jewish people isn't what was referred to as all the world will be blessed through you. What is it referring to? The cross work of Christ. That makes good Bible sense. I mean, what better blessing for all the world, all the nations, than Jesus, the son of Abraham, coming to die on the cross and free people from their sins? It's a, it's a major point. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. That you want to get a hold of. Abraham believed by faith and received righteousness when God told him that all the world would be blessed through his seed, he was preaching the gospel. Does that make sense now? The gospel, he's sort of foretelling that Christ would come. Verse number 10. Let's, let's kind of move on here. Um, I wanted to tell you a little bit about that. Here, I have to, I got, I've got a nice picture up here, so I've got to tell you about it. <laughs> Tuck this away for your study, too. When you're studying Abraham, Genesis chapter 11, what's the scene in Genesis chapter 11? The Tower of Babel. Why is it there? Well, you could, for different reasons. What are they trying to do in Genesis 11? You have a group of people that are going to make a great name for themselves, and they build a tower to heaven. Now, maybe they, you know, just had bad depth perception and thought they could get it really high and, you know, kind of climb into the heavens, but probably not, right? What was more likely is that they were building something like this, a worship system, a ziggurat from the ancient Near East, and what did they do on the top of it? They did business with the demonic forces. They did business with the gods, right? They're going to build a tower. They're going to do worship. You know, they, they, they're, they're getting to idolatry. You have one world religion, one world race, one world language, and they're all united around idolatrous worship. And the Lord comes down and is like, this has got to end, and, and, and separates them. What comes in the next chapter after chapter 11? We just read it, chapter 12. In chapter 12, God picks a man and says, I'm going to make your name great. You see that? In chapter 11, let's make a, a great name for ourselves and not be forgotten. And they're about to unite the whole world in idolatrous worship. The next chapter, the Lord says, I'm going to make your name great, Abraham, and I'm going to bless the world through you. It's a fascinating contrast. One chapter, world-destroying idolatrous you know, religion, and the next chapter, the Lord's announcing plans to bless the entire planet through the descendant of Abraham. Two names, two great names, two you know, religions contrasted. 
All right, what's the third argument? All right, so we've looked at um, their experience. We've looked at the experience of Abraham. Uh, let's just talk a little bit about the dangerous consequences of living under the law. Trying to live under the Mosaic law brings dangerous consequences. What's the dangerous consequence? Verse number 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Just like it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. What's the curse? Let me give you something else that's interesting here, okay? You remember your story of the Israelites coming into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. They come across Jordan, and what does Moses say that they're supposed to do? I want you guys to get on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and what are you going to do? You're going to pronounce the blessings and the curses of the law, and it's, and it's an amazing thing that they do. Um, if you turn to Deuteronomy sort of 28, they go through. Basically, if you follow the covenant, you'll be blessed in the field, you'll be blessed on the battlefield, your, your, your children will be healthy. They, they sort of, they, it's antiphonal. And this is sort of a natural amphitheater. I'm told, some of you can tell me if I picked up a piece of urban legend lore here, I'm told you can hear each other. Okay, I know some of you have been to Israel. Um, and then on the other side, they're announcing the curses, right? If we abandon the covenant, the diseases will come upon us. And we'll fail in battle and our crops won't grow and the rain won't come. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all of the law. If you accept the legal system upon yourself and you step into this system, which is what they were doing, you are inviting the curse of the law upon you. You, you can't pick and choose. You don't get to make your own law system. A little this, a little that. It doesn't work that way. Paul's telling him, look, if you go here, then you go there. And if you go there, you don't have anything to protect you from the curse of the law. You don't have the sacrificial system. You rejected Christ. What's going to protect you from the curse of the law? Nothing. You don't want to do that. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There's another slide there. You have two choices. Look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 11. Now it is evident, it's obvious, that no one is justified before God by the law. Why? And he quotes a little verse from Habakkuk 2.4. The just or the righteous shall live by faith. It's really fascinating. He grabs this little verse out of Habakkuk. Right? Habakkuk's talking about how the Babylonians would come. Lord, what's going to happen? And the Lord, you know, he's describing the plunder. and He says, but the righteous will live by faith. Right, the righteous people in Israel that are waiting for the Lord to sort of fix all of this mess, they're doing it by faith. Right? Paul picks this up, the Holy Spirit through Paul, and says this is the principle that's going to govern the New Testament. Right? And it's really governed all of Scripture history. The just, the righteous live by faith. He's like, you get, to, you get to pick whichever trolley line you want to get on, but there are two different trolley lines. You want to live by faith, you want to live by the works of the law and be under the curse of the law. Okay, but if you, go, if you go by the law, number one, nobody's ever kept all of the law, and you, you put yourself under the curse of the law. You might ask this question, which is a, a bold question to ask with five minutes left. How were people saved before Jesus came? I put this here because I was curious. You ever, you ever wonder about that? Here's why. Here, here's a little bit of, like, theological history for you. People have criticized the old Schofield reference Bible because they found in it sloppy notes in Ephesians that suggested or implied or sounded like Old Testament believers were saved by keeping the law. 
And, and all of the non-dispensationalists were like, see, you guys preach a works-based salvation. You're total heretics. That's why we don't buy the, the Schofield Reference Bible, right? And so they kind of had to fix that. You got the new Schofield Bible, and, and they modified a number of different things from classical dispensationalism in, in the new Schofield Reference Bible that, that came out in the, well, I think the 60s, revised dispensationalism. Um, one of them, for example, was that some of the older dispensationalists taught that there were two new covenants, one for Israel and one for the church. That's interesting, right? The scripture doesn't really teach that. They're so desirous to keep Israel and the church separate, they kind of hinted at two new covenants and two different peoples of God, and the, the, the revised Schofield Bible sort of backed away from that. But one of the things they had to do was fix that note, right? People in the Old Testament were saved by faith, by grace. You know, dispensationalists have never taught that. So you might ask, how were people saved before Jesus came, right? Salvation is always by grace through faith, Okay? Old Testament believers were not saved by keeping the law. Right? They're saved by faith. Right? Faith in whom? The Lord. I don't know if you can even see that. Right? Faith in what? God's promise. What promise? The promise, the word that they were believing varied from age to age. And this is Hebrews chapter 11. Right? Noah, what did Noah believe? Did Noah believe that Jesus Christ was going to come and die on the cross for his sins? Probably not. But did he live by faith? Yeah, you bet. What did he believe? He believed God's promises. What did Abraham believe? That Jesus was going to come and die on the cross for his sins, you know, penal substitution, all that? Probably not. He believed the promises of God. Faith in God's word, ultimately anchored in Christ. Salvation has been by faith. Now you express your faith. You show your faith by doing what? A lot of things. Building an ark, leaving your country, keeping the Mosaic law. You express the fact that you believe God. What you do to exemplify your faith is a very different thing than who your faith is lodged in. Does that make sense? Salvation was always by faith in the Scriptures. I think the content changed and what they did to express that change. That's what Hebrews is all about. God says to people, hey, Sarah, you're going to have a child. At some point, she believed. Abraham, you need to leave your country. How do you know Abraham had faith? Did he have a card he pulled out? Look at my faith card right here. Got it last week. No. How do you know Abraham believed God? How do you know he believed God? Because he said so? Everybody says stuff. How do you know Abraham legit believed God, to use a technical theological term? He did crazy stuff. He left his country. He walked his son up Mount Moriah. You're not going to do that if you don't believe God's going to fulfill his promises. He so believed that God would fulfill his promise to to bring the covenants to pass through Isaac, that he started thinking about resurrection, we're told later in the scriptures. That's faith. That's why he's called the father of the faith, right? Well, back in, back in Galatians chapter 3, um, let me just show you two other things here. You'll have to get the rest of the slides. The last main argument that Paul uses in Galatians 3 is um, a simple idea, covenant promises. When you, make, when you make a will, once it's set in stone, things that come after it don't change it. If you, you set up a will and then you pass away, things that happen after that don't change what you put into that will. And, and Abraham says, look, God gave sort of like a will, a covenant promise to Abraham. The law came 430 years after that. The law doesn't change any of that. All the things God said to Abraham are still in place. The law was sort of like a parenthesis, a stopgap. It was a temporary thing. 
So it doesn't make any sense at all that you would go back to um, the law. Let me go ahead and offer you guys these slides if anybody uh, wants them. Um, let, me, let me just close up with a verse in the end of chapter uh, 3. Look with me at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So the law was our guardian, right? Paul basically ends the chapter asking, all right, if the law was this temporary thing, if salvation came by faith to Abraham and salvation comes by faith to us, why was the law given? And Abraham says the law was given because of sin. It was sort of like a chaperone. That's the word pedagogos. It's a chaperone. The Greeks had slaves that they would hire to make sure their boys didn't do rascally stuff on the way to school and, and you know, teach them some manners. That's the word that's used for the law. The law is our, not tutor, not schoolmaster that educates us. This is a chaperone, right, that keeps kids from misbehaving. It gets them to where they're supposed to be. The law, that's what the law was, to bring us to Christ. Until the promised time the Messiah would come, God put the law in place because of sin to bring us to Christ. The law teaches us that we're sinful. The law foreshadows Christ. The law teaches us we need a Savior. It brings us to Christ in so many different ways. And then Paul says, once Christ comes, you grow up, and you get adopted in the family, and you go from being little kids, you go from being slaves to being full-grown sons. Women, you're sons of Abraham. You're sons under the law. Why sons? Because sons have all the legal rights. This is one area where the gender language actually matters a lot. The sons under the Roman system had legal rights. He says, we're all sons now. You get full status, full-grown adult legal status as being adopted by Christ. And he goes into a beautiful picture in chapter 4. You were slaves, but now you're full family members, full rights. Why would you ever go back to the law? It's a rich chapter. Yeah, obviously, I just dumped the last half of my slides and jumped to the end. <laughs> right? It's a rich chapter. Dig into Galatians chapter 3. Um, go back and look at Abraham. Look at the covenants. Look at all the amazing things that the Lord has done. And whatever you do, don't buy into a piece of a system that's built on works righteousness because that will bleed into your whole life and it will completely mess you up, Paul says. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to, Lord, not just read verses and read scripture, but to understand your word and to rejoice and enjoy the amazing gift of righteousness. We ask you to help us to walk by the Spirit so that that's worked out in our lives. We ask that you would keep and bless and protect the believers here as they go into their work weeks, as they go home and put the kids to bed, as they get up in the morning and drive through traffic, Lord. I just ask that you would help them to get, get, a, get a spare moment to just think about righteousness, think about the gift of of, of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, and that you would help them to walk after the Spirit in their work week um, and then help them to grow after Christ. Um, if there's anybody in this room that's struggling with a, an alternative system that will take them from Christ, Lord, I ask that you would bring the person or the book or the video or the whatever it is into their life to help them to avoid that mistake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.